Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. Today we'll be discussing Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard, a landmark decision that has radically changed what affirmative action or diversity is permitted in universities across the country. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today we're joined remotely by Professor Theodore Shaw of University of North Carolina, one of the universities that is directly involved in this lawsuit. Professor Shaw, thank you so much for the time today. Well, thank you, Joe. Good to be with you. And I see we're not reaching in your office this morning, Professor. Where are you today? No, well, you you are in a way. You're joining me in my Honda Accord office. <laughs> <laughs> your mobile office. We are at the beach this weekend in Topsail Beach, North Carolina, right outside of Wilmington, where there's a jazz festival. And even though this decision came down and is consuming a lot of my time, I need to spend some time with my family. And there's no better way to do that for me than to be at a jazz festival. Well, very much appreciate you jumping on so quickly right after the case dropped. That's all right. Thank you. Does this case end affirmative action in in higher education in the United States? It uh, certainly is an attempt to do that. How much it accomplishes that remains to be seen. You know, in 1978, when Baki was decided, uh, we really didn't know what Justice Powell's opinion would mean, because I regularly say that Baki all but killed affirmative action in higher education. And even though people conflate the terms affirmative action and diversity, they are not the same thing. They overlap, but they are not the same thing. And uh, as it turned out, diversity left a great deal open for opportunities to enroll students of color, but particularly African-Americans. So we're not sure, but at worst, this will represent Uh, yet another betrayal uh, in the long history of betrayals of the interest of African-Americans. It's one thing to interpret what the Chief Justice said or what the court in its various concurrences and dissents say and what that actually means on the ground. Uh, That's right. That's right. Well, Professor, you teach at UNC. I got to ask, why do you think the University of North Carolina was singled out, along with Harvard, to be the defendants in this case. You know, there's a history now of attempts to sue public universities, uh, and uh, the suits against public universities were pursued uh, because uh, the 14th Amendment applies to state institutions. Um, And UNC is not only one of the major state institutions of higher education, but it's also the oldest institution of higher education in the country that's public. But UNC had not yet been sued. It was an obvious target, uh, so it's not a surprise. Were these two different lawsuits? There was a lawsuit against Harvard and a lawsuit against UNC, and then they were kind of combined in the decision? Yes, that's right. They were two separate lawsuits. And, you know, I made a reference to the fact that Public universities have been sued up until now. This was the first time in this long chain of 
uh, lawsuits against uh, higher educational institutions that a private institution was sued. Hmm. Up until now, private institutions had not been targeted, and uh, that was because they wanted to use the 14th Amendment. Oddly enough, uh, in uh, the opinion that came down, there's some imprecision. In fact, uh, I'll say even sloppiness on the part of the Chief Justice that puzzled me, uh, which is that the Chief Justice writes as if the 14th Amendment does apply to Harvard. It doesn't. There's, of course, Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which uh, uses the same standard of proof. But still, that's not the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment does not apply to private institutions, although perhaps I'm getting too much into the weeds. Well, I think we're going to talk a bit more about the, the 14th Amendment in a bit, but why don't we jump in, I guess, into the facts of the case. Who's claiming to be harmed? And then what were the allegations against the universities? Let's take the Harvard case first, because we've already established that these were two separate suits. They were tried in separate courts. The Harvard case uh, in the federal court up in Boston, the UNC case in a federal court in North Carolina, and they were not joined together for consideration until they were in the Supreme Court. Hmm. But let's take the Harvard case first. Uh, students for fair admissions, and, you know, I always cringe a little bit when I... Wait, Professor, am I detecting some some skepticism that this isn't a natural grassroots student organization? Absolutely. Uh, this is Ed Blum's organization. And we can talk about Ed Blum and who he is and what else he's done. But uh, yeah, they have gone out and recruited some students. And uh, if you look at the opinion, the opinion uh, references some questions of whether or not the organization even should be able to bring suit whether it had standing, but there's no sense in quibbling about that. The court has ruled that uh, it's a real organization, and uh, what Ed Blum has done, I'll even credit him and say uh, it's either brilliantly cynical or cynically brilliant. I'm not sure which or whether it matters, but, uh, you know, he's. this is not the first rodeo for him. Uh, he's brought other suits, as you know, in higher education and uh, also a very successful suit involving the Voting Rights Act. But in higher education, in particular, the uh, University of Texas, he's gone to the Supreme Court twice and lost. Uh, what he did in the Harvard case uh, this time was focus on Asian and Asian American students and focused on them as plaintiffs. The wrinkle of bringing Asian Americans in as plaintiffs changes the calculus in some degrees and, and the appearance of the lawsuit, if not the reality. Uh, and so the claim was that the affirmative action efforts of Harvard University have damaged significantly uh, the ability of Asian Americans and uh, also the people they originally were concerned about, white folk, to be fairly considered for admission to Harvard University, which of course is extremely uh, competitive. But the claim was that diversity efforts on the part of Harvard University hurt 
Asian Americans and white applicants and were unfair and that they represented a violation of the anti-discrimination law. SFFA lost in the trial court in Harvard, uh, in the Harvard case, and they lost again in the Court of Appeals. And then, of course, it was appealed to the Supreme Court where they won. You mentioned that there's a difference between diversity and what you referred to as affirmative action. And these schools are using this justification that it's for improving leadership or creating this particular more rich atmosphere where people can learn more. Why isn't the focus more on what you were describing, which is, hey, this is a remedy for a really entrenched problem? It was first an affirmative action imperative when these institutions began to admit significant numbers of African-American students. Nobody talked about diversity. You know, my first job out of law school, I worked at the Justice Department in the Civil Rights Division. And I mentioned that because there was a, uh, what I thought at the time was an uh, old black man who would walk the halls of the Justice Department I didn't know who this man was uh, beyond knowing his name, Hobart Taylor. Hobart Taylor turns out to be the, the individual who coined the term affirmative action. He was asked by President John F. Kennedy to serve on a commission that looked at uh, what needed to be done to remedy the kind of uh, uh, historical efforts to subordinate black people that we talked about. And uh, he and others uh, came up with um, policies that were the beginning of affirmative action. Nobody talked about diversity at that time. I don't think the word was even used. Uh, I've been uh, continuing to scour uh, all the historical records I could find, um, and certainly the case law. And you don't find any references to diversity until 1978 when the Supreme Court uh, heard and then decided the Bakke uh, case in the 1977-78 Supreme Court term. That decision was a very complicated set of opinions uh, that left uh, many people saying that there was no one rationale. And that was because Powell was kind of cobbling together enough votes, but differing views on how affirmative action should be treated? I was at the Supreme Court on June 28th, um, which ironically, uh, you know, when uh, these two cases that just came down uh, were announced, it was uh, 45 years to the day plus one day from the day that uh, Baki was decided. And I was at the Supreme Court when Baki was announced, and I left that courtroom absolutely devastated because for African Americans, Baki was a loss. Uh, you know, and I could explain the reasons why it was a, a loss. And, um, you know, even today, 45 uh, years and now, uh, two or three days later, Baki was a loss for African-Americans in so many ways. And yet, 
Powell's opinion, after it did so much damage to affirmative action, came up with this rationale um, that was a, uh, a new rationale uh, of diversity. Uh, when I say that uh, affirmative action and diversity are not the same thing, affirmative action rested in the interest of African Americans and other people of color who have been subordinated under law, and it aimed to remedy that long history that I talked about. And let me say, uh, uh, let me take a moment and say that uh, these issues impact all Americans. You know, it's not only African Americans, but let me say just as clearly that uh, much of the controversy around what's been called affirmative action and what's now been called diversity still focuses uh, on uh, African Americans. Um, much of the heat um, is aimed at institutions uh, because of the belief on the part of some people that black people are intellectually inferior and undeserving of admission to these uh, uh, you know, predominantly white and selective institutions. Um, and I wanna be unapologetic about pointing that out, even though, uh, you know, Latinx people, um, you know, Asian Americans and Asians, and I start to say indigenous uh, uh, people in this country, Native Americans, although uh, the story of the treatment of Asian Americans is also very unique in its own way. And, um, they have been treated uh, as badly uh, or worse than just about anyone else, uh, with the exception of African Americans. So, um, uh, Baki was a loss. Um, Powell comes up with this uh, with this First Amendment interest, you know, affirmative action, Fourteenth Amendment interest of. Uh, African-American people primarily, and originally um, uh, Powell comes up with a First Amendment interest that belongs to institutions, colleges and universities, and by extension, the majority of the students enrolled in these institutions who are white. Uh, and diversity is an interest to the institutions and to white students, uh, and black and brown students are beneficiaries of the First Amendment interests that belong to these colleges and universities. Um, and so uh, in, at the end of the day, still uh, the diversity interest uh, is a rationale uh, that left the doors open to uh, students of color, but particularly African-Americans, black and brown students uh, over the last 45 years, although it was challenged from the day it was decided how do you mean, Professor? What I mean is that uh, conservatives said from the day it was decided that uh, it did not have any intellectual coherence. Um, they said that Justice Powell's opinion did not command uh, five votes, at, le at least that part of the opinion that, uh, uh, that uh, upheld diversity as a compelling interest uh, for colleges and universities. Uh, of course, they were happy with that part of the opinion that commanded five votes that uh, basically, as I keep saying, 
all but killed affirmative action in higher education. Um, and it's worth talking about that part of it, what was wrong from our perspective, uh, because it still informs the opinion that just came down. In the Baki case, Powell said that the same standards uh, applied when looking at uh, what was called benign um, race consciousness or benign uh, discrimination as opposed to invidious discrimination uh, and applied uh, the most difficult standard under the 14th Amendment. So even pro-diversity measures had to face strict scrutiny. That's right. That's right. We're going to treat um, efforts to include people who have historically been included uh, as if they are uh, racist. Um, uh, and uh, that was one part of the Powell opinion that was a loss. But also Powell created uh, something called societal discrimination. Uh, it said that the University of California at Davis, uh, that was the defendant, uh, in uh, the Baki case, uh, which was a fairly new institution, so it didn't have its own long history of discrimination. Uh, but, you know, Davis Medical School wanted to create more uh, uh, minority doctors. And uh, Powell said that institutions could not uh, try to do that they could only remedy their own discrimination. They couldn't remedy what was called, quote, societal discrimination, end quote. Uh, in other words, this category of societal discrimination that he created and pointed to, that was discrimination for which no one was responsible and for which there was no remedy. Most of the uh, discrimination that uh, historically existed in the United States and uh, its, uh, uh, its predecessor colonial entity uh, was uh, not reachable, couldn't do anything about it. Uh, you wring uh, your hands about it and then you wash your hands of it in effect. Um, so that was a, a very significant loss. But also Powell looked at the 14th Amendment uh, and ignored or refused to acknowledge the history of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment, uh, ratified in 1868, clearly was intended to bring the recently freed slaves into, uh, or enslaved people, into uh, equality. Um, and the 39th Congress that uh, enacted the 14th Amendment engaged in all kinds of race-conscious measures, uh, created the Freedmen's Bureau to help African-Americans, created uh, schools for black folks, hospitals for black folks, uh, all kinds of measures clearly aimed uh, at black people. Uh, so uh, how is it that we can think as Powell did and as conservatives have thought uh, even the conservatives on this court, that uh, the same Congress that created the 14th Amendment uh, believed that all race-conscious measures were per se uh, violations of that 14th Amendment when they created all these other race-conscious measures. Uh, well, Powell didn't deal with that, even though that argument was put before him. 
Uh, and uh, that was a tremendous loss uh, because it interprets the 14th Amendment in a way that's not consistent with its legislative history. But Powell's diversity opinion kind of snatched uh, some measure of victory from the jaws of defeat. Um, but I often talked about, uh, have talked about uh, the diversity opinion that Powell wrote. He told the story about what was important uh, with respect to race through the eyes of the universities, uh, uh, the First Amendment interest of the universities and the benefits to uh, the campuses and to white students. It's not told through the eyes of black and brown people. And yet, diversity stood as the rationale that predominated for 45 years, and black and brown people were beneficiaries of that rationale, even though there was a great deal lost in Baki. Does that make sense? You mentioned a few times how Baki all but killed affirmative action, but within this concept or this regime of, of diversity or, or improving inclusion or creating a more beneficial environment, there was enough space for universities that wanted to, to really invest in creating uh, more opportunities for students of color. That's a fair statement. And let me be clear, as much as, as I've been critical of uh, the Baki decision or Powell's decision in Baki, I have personally been engaged in defending diversity uh, as a rationale for uh, uh, race-conscious admissions over the last 45 years, even though I don't think it's the original or even the most powerful rationale in support of uh, those efforts. I think that was the affirmative action rationale, but I support both. In other words, uh, race-conscious admissions could stand on two legs. Uh, affirmative action, uh, and the other leg being diversity efforts. Um, they overlap, but they are not the same. Professor, we're talking today about uh, discrimination and inclusion. And, you know, I see you're sitting in your car at the beach. You were saying off camera that that particular beach has its own history with discrimination and uh, inclusion. Yes, um, so uh, Topsail Beach um, uh, is uh, just north of Wilmington, and um, for many years it was one of the few beaches that African Americans could go to. In fact, there was a, an African American, uh, a black beach community that was established here in the uh, 1950s, and uh, if I can be immodest for a minute, my grandfather and his brothers were uh, the individuals who, along with the assistance of a white lawyer, um, started this uh, beach community. Oh, wow. It was on land that had been a bombing range in the Second World War, and so uh, it wasn't like it was a place that a lot of people came to to go to the beach. Uh, there was unexploded ordinance for a number of years and uh you're kidding there was actually bombs on the beach well at one time because they dropped a lot of bombs out of here um i can't tell you that uh 
or when the last um, uh, bombs were cleared from here. Um, and so this place, like many other places, has been gentrified. Uh, there are uh, some of the original black families in this area still here, uh, but many are not here, and many others are here. Um, there's still a chapel up the road from here that uh, is named for one of my great uncles, um, and we go to Sunday services when we're here. Um, so, uh, so here we are at Topsley Beach. Well, why don't we uh, jump back into the case so we can let you get out there and enjoy. Um, you know, where we left off, I, I was asking, Robert's opinion is not a, a particularly brief one, uh, but I guess if you could, and maybe this task is, is asking a lot, but what is his main takeaway? What is his main thrust? And some ways his main thrust is a you know when john roberts wrote the majority opinion in the case that struck down uh, a significant part of the voting rights act uh, a few years back uh, he basically was saying it's been a long time it's been too long and whatever happened in the past we acknowledge it but it no longer justifies um what we've been doing now. Well, that's what he's saying here in so many words. Uh, again and again, I haven't done the count yet, but at some point soon I'm going to go back and, and try to find how many times he does it in his opinion. He comes back to this point that there has to be an end to uh, race-conscious uh, admissions or he goes beyond it. He doesn't call it race-conscious admissions. He's calling it race-based admissions, as if race were the only thing that was considered in this admission, in these admissions. But again and again, he says it has to be an end. And this is it. He said uh, that the way to stop discrimination is to stop discrimination. Uh, well, I don't think that's particularly brilliant, but that he thought it had force and others may. Uh, and in this opinion, um, he talks about uh, discrimination. It, it, to end discrimination, you have to end all discrimination uh, and discrimination in all forms. That's an argument for colorblindness, in effect, as if we've, we've reached that, uh, that point, that nirvana. Well, yeah, according to him, I guess... I guess the uh, the finish line has been reached. That's right. That's right. Um, so, so that's the essence. I mean, there are other points that he makes, but... Professor, if, if I could ask a, a couple of questions. I mean, one thing that you kind of hammered in on was how Roberts was saying remedial measures can't last forever. There has to be an end date. But I thought in Baki, what happened was there was a shift away from that, that it wasn't it wasn't even about solving the prior wrongs as much as it was about creating this more rich and beneficial diverse environment and if that's the case why was he so unimpressed by the justifications that Harvard and UNC set forth that you know this is about that I don't want to lose anything that you just said uh, it's extremely important uh, I didn't mention yet the 
the ways in which he looked at all of the justifications that Harvard and UNC proffered. And they had expert witnesses. Um, and this goes back to the the Michigan case, the Gruder case in 2003, where all of these benefits of diversity are um, profited by the university um, and the universities in the uh, Miki briefs that they filed. Um, and Roberts goes through each one of those those uh, interests and justifications and says that um, they don't stand up. You know, they're not sufficient uh, to justify race consciousness and admissions. That's right. But the other point that you make is something I think is extremely important. If in Baki, as you recognize, uh, the uh, affirmative action rationale, which was a remedial rationale, and all of the law uh, of uh, school desegregation cases, uh, of uh, employment discrimination cases, all of the law uh, and the jurisprudence which talks about how uh, intentional discrimination has to be remedied says that those remedies have to come to an end. I get that. You know, that's right. On the other hand, a diversity rationale is not the same thing as a remedial rationale. And the, the diversity rationale, if in fact the interest is that of the university in the benefits of diversity, uh, that's an interest that uh, is not going to end. That's always going to be true for universities, that the benefits of diversity redound to the interest of uh, the students and the university uh, the only question is whether or not institutions will have to continue to act deliberately to achieve that diversity. Uh, but the idea that the diversity interest itself uh, will come to an end doesn't make sense, uh, in my view. But because the court uh, has failed to distinguish between affirmative action and diversity, and in fact has uh, has been confused apparently about that. And the Supreme Court shouldn't be confused about this. Uh, you know those distinctions get lost. I say uh, confused because a few years ago in the uh, Fisher case, Professor, was that another case that was brought by an organization? Uh, run by Blum? Yes, Ed Blum was behind that one also. Uh, uh, so that's right. Um, and um, uh, the reason I say this is because there's, there's an exchange that one can find in the transcript of the oral argument in which uh, Justice Alito says something like, let's take a hypothetical black couple a professional couple, a doctor and a lawyer, and uh, the institution wants to give them the benefit of consideration uh, of uh, diversity. And what Alito says is something like, why should that black professional couple's children get the benefit of uh, special consideration 
I thought that was all about uh, remedying the history of discrimination. Why should they get that benefit uh, when they're the son or the daughter of a professional black couple? And when I read that, I thought to myself, well, is, um, with all due respect, uh, uh, which uh, I struggle to maintain, frankly, these days, uh, is Justice Alito being that obtuse? Uh, you know, the um, if the rationale uh, is, in fact, diversity, then even the son, or not even, uh, just as as apparently the son or the daughter of a black professional couple, they bring something different to the institution. You know, the conservatives argue all the time uh, that one of the problems with uh, these diversity efforts is that it assumes that all black people think alike. Well, you know, these uh, children of that hypothetical black couple may have an experience that isn't often represented at these institutions, but certainly they are just as capable as uh, anyone else of thinking in another way. It's it's almost as though he's he's limiting diversity to saying poor, uh, economic diversity, when what I understood the universities... That's a kind way of thinking about it. I think, I think he's thinking about it only as... Um, as affirmative action, which the court, as I said, all but killed already. So, yeah. Justice Roberts, in the opinion, takes some time to make fun of. I cannot imagine having to be the the engineer who comes up with how these these programs promote diversity without running afoul of the rules set forth in Baki. Yeah. And... Yeah, and and also defining diversity. I get that that's a her- Herculean task, um, and Justice Roberts kind of points to some of the the challenges that these officers faced. As as am I right? As kind of an indictment of their program. He specifically abandons the notion that first was um, was profit in um, Powell's opinion in Baki that universities should be accorded deference in making decisions about certain things. Who gets admitted? What the academic values are of the institution? He says the universities are asking us to trust them, and he's saying no. He's saying we don't trust them. That's very different from what uh, Justice Powell said in Baki uh, when Powell talked about deference to the institutions, and for that matter, uh, what, uh, you know, Justice Sanjay Day O'Connor wrote uh, in the Michigan cases. Um, And what it points to is the fact that this is a very different court than its predecessor courts. Let me be clear. Justice Sanjay Day O'Connor, even though many people remember her differently after the, the Michigan cases and the decision in in Gruder that she authored, but she was a very conservative justice. Um, Speaking as someone who litigated race discrimination cases for decades, um, when Justice O'Connor was on on the court, hers was a vote more often than not, we did not win on behalf of our clients in civil rights cases, 
But in the Gruder case, in the Michigan case, she did write an opinion that upheld diversity as a compelling interest. My point is that uh, this court has changed, and even prior conservative courts are being left in the dust, so to speak, when it comes to their jurisprudence. Their jurisprudence is being overturned by this court. And now for my lawyer friends out there who are listening for continuing education credit. The code for this one is 51924. Again, that is 51924. And now back to the interview. This was interesting as well. I mean, Roberts doesn't expressly overturn Gruder or Fisher or Baki. So it's unlike the Dobbs decision, the abortion decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. But yet his argument isn't exactly lockstep. Like you're saying, you know, diversity was good enough for Gruder, diversity as a, a compelling interest, but it's no longer. As we've seen him do before and seen the court do, uh, you know, you can you can leave the shell of a precedent standing and 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 gut it. It appears that is effectively what has been done here, even though already you know, I'm hearing uh, diversity advocates, civil rights advocates, affirmative action advocates saying that there's a sliver of hope and he didn't do what some people are saying he did, which is to completely overturn uh, all of that precedent. Well, we'll find out in time. Uh, how much damage he has done. But there's no doubt in my mind that he intended uh, to end much, if not all, of what we know as diversity and affirmative action. Well, I wanted to read a few of the justifications that Harvard and UNC uh, mentioned. Training future leaders in the public and private sector preparing graduates to adapt to an increasingly pluralistic society, better educating students through diversity, promoting robust exchange of ideas, broadening and refining understanding, fostering innovation and problem solving, preparing engaged and productive citizens and leaders, and enhancing respect, empathy, and cross-racial understanding, as well as breaking down stereotypes. Robert said that they're commendable goals, but not strong enough for... Uh, to meet the test of strict scrutiny. Commendable, but not sufficient. Notice that those are all um, justifications that have been offered in the context of the diversity rationale. Um, You know, there's no mention there of uh, what justifications uh, underlie the affirmative action rationale. I'm just going back to our earlier discussion to underscore once again uh, that they overlap but are not the same thing. But yes, Roberts says all those things, commendable uh, but not sufficient, that's different than uh, what the court said in Gruder and in the subsequent uh, two Fisher uh, opinions. And uh, when he says this, um, it's a bald declaration. Uh, you know, I, I don't, I don't see 
uh, a strong and compelling uh, a reason why what he says is so is just you know it it it's so because we say it's so with the Supreme Court or at least a majority of the Supreme Court. Yeah, he said it in almost a way that that seemed like it was self-evident. Yeah, yeah. So it sweeps aside all of those justifications with, uh, and I know you 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 know you want to discuss this with uh, one exception. Interestingly enough, that uh, Justice Jackson picks up on with a vengeance. This notion that the military academies are not included, they're not impacted by what the supermajority wrote the other day. Um, well, you know, there's, um, it's not clear. I mean, I guess the, the point that was made in Gruda that was also profited in an amicus brief by retired military generals and admirals that our national security uh, not only is enhanced, but in some respects depends on diversity in our armed forces. So Roberts and company are not trying to reject that rationale. And they say this doesn't apply to our military uh, academies. The problem with that is that First, if we're going to focus only on our military and our military preparedness, um, most of the leaders of today's um, armed forces, most of the offices come out of colleges and universities that are not the military academy. Oh, interesting. Uh, you know, ROTC, ROTC uh, programs, uh, are the source of many of those who become the leaders in our military. So it's not quite so simple as saying, well, this doesn't or this may not apply to the armed services. Well, that's right. And also, um, all of those reasons that he cavalierly sweeps aside uh, with respect to the rest of society, corporate America, and uh, all these other institutions throughout our society, many of them also... Uh, have relevance to our um, military preparedness, although that's not the only thing we ought to be thinking about. Uh, and certainly, as I said, Justice Jackson uh, takes him to task for that. Professor, in the footnote where where Justice Roberts kind of caveats out, hey, this doesn't necessarily apply to the military, he's not saying this doesn't apply to the military in the sense that we may come back and look at it and decide that it, the military should also get rid of their diversity programs. Right, but on, on this day... On this day, we're not doing that. He leaves that intact. That's right. And your point uh, reminds me that uh, we've seen Chief Justice Roberts uh, in the past uh, leave something in place but effectively warn that we're going to come back to it and then come back to it and uh, and wipe it away. That's what he did with uh, a case uh, involving a municipal water district in Texas uh, that preceded the uh, Shelby County versus Holder case, which gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act uh, and left uh, African-Americans, uh, uh, Latinx people, 
vulnerable to discrimination and the exercise of the right to vote. So we've seen him do this before. What he really means, only time will tell. Well, I guess, you know, one of the other... I, I wanted to talk about what else was kind of left open and perhaps one of the notable exceptions to where Justice Roberts is is creating some space to at least be referential to race involves student essays. Professor, what, what was he saying in that segment? First, let me say that during the oral argument, there was this interesting uh, exchange. And if I can remember it precisely, it went something like this. Suppose you have a, a white applicant whose family has uh, been in North Carolina for not only decades, but hundreds of years. And uh, they have a strong connection not only with North Carolina, but with UNC uh, many, many decades. And they write about that in their application essay. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing uh, that we can see that uh, is legally problematic with them doing that. On the other hand, uh, suppose you have a, a an African-American applicant who writes about their life experiences and the experiences of their families and their place in North Carolina, North Carolina having this long history, as we know, of uh, racial discrimination. And they write about that in their application essay is, you know, is that problematic? Um, you know, does that raise questions of, uh, you know, race and equal protection, etc.? And that was Justice Katanji Brown Jackson? Yes, it was, although uh, I think it was uh, even Kavanaugh who asked some questions about that or seemed to have been an in interest in that. It was either Kavanaugh or Gorsuch, I don't remember. Uh, but it was apparent that there was an inconsistency in that. Um, and so as we awaited the opinion, many of us were interested in seeing what would come out of that line of questioning. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's the background of that. And now we see uh, Chief Justice Roberts indicating that uh, it may be, uh, it may be, appropriate for, uh, or at least unproblematic for a, uh, a black um, applicant to write about how race has uh, affected or impacted or the significance of race in their lives. Um, that might be okay, but we don't know what that means or what he thinks it means with respect to what a university has to do or can do um, to consider race and admissions. How much weight can... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I think what's clear is that uh, it may be important for African-American students uh, if they think that race has had an, a, an impact in their lives uh, to do exactly that, to write about it. And it may be uh, that, uh, you know, that door is left open. Yeah, and I wonder if we'll see litigation down the road when schools add that as a specific question. <laughs> Tell us about yeah. something about your yeah. 
your race or yeah. gender identity or sexual orientation that, that we might want to learn about? Well, Ed Blum, again, behind all these cases, has made clear that uh, his organization is going to come after anything uh, that, uh, however roundabout, that uh, acts as a proxy for race. And so, you know, Ed Bloom is, is uh, on a mission. He's focused. Yeah, he has a purpose, and it's to end all efforts to pursue any conscious uh, steps uh, aimed at uh, opening opportunities or keeping them up for black and brown students. Professor, there was a reference that Roberts made to prior affirmative action or prior remedial measures that dealt with something called critical mass theory. And he said, well, that's not at issue here. But what was he talking about? And was he carving out the possibility that, yeah, if it's a critical mass concern, that might be fine as well? Well, in the Michigan case, there was some significant discussion about the issue of critical mass. Uh, Some of the experts talked about the fact that if uh, black or brown students are one or two or one of the few, the only students in their classes that you don't get the benefits of diversity that you get if uh, there's more representation. And those students may feel a kind of pressure on them. And so in the Michigan case, there was some recognition of that issue of critical mass the challenge was that as soon as you begin to talk about critical mass or any other discussion which even obliquely refers to numerical issues, uh, conservatives turn that into quotas and say that that's what you're trying to do is impose a quota regime on uh, institutions. Um, so that, if it wasn't a third rail, um, it was uh, something uh, to be avoided. Oh, so maybe this was just a way for him to distinguish the Michigan case. In some ways, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I want to be clear. Uh, I think conservatives will still try to turn that issue into a quota. Uh, uh, on the other hand, when those who design diversity efforts do their work, they're, they've been very careful to avoid anything that smacks of uh, a numerical uh, requirement. Professor, I want to ask you about another tricky aspect of Roberts's opinion, which was he brings up this concept in rejection of the university's claims that, yeah, we're only using race to benefit. Roberts pushes back and says, that's impossible when you're competitive schools like yours, UNC and Harvard. In fact, he says that this is all zero sum. He says it's zero sum because there's never there's never empty spots to get into Harvard, for example. So if they're using it to advantage one, how can that not disadvantage another? What's your take on that? And is that enabling him to kind of use the full strength of the 14th Amendment's uh, defenses? So I was somewhat, not somewhat, I was, well, I was somewhat surprised, but interested in his statement that this is all zero sum 
because I think that also was inconsistent with precedent to the extent that diversity uh, was found to be uh, a benefit uh, to not only the institutions, but also uh, to the students there um, at these institutions. There was no, I think, uh, I mean, maybe there was some somewhere, but I don't remember anything as uh, as bluntly talking about zero-sum politics in admissions before, uh, because the truth is, is that it's always going to be the case that not only some of the students don't get in, uh, even if you take uh, race out of consideration, but uh, the vast majority of students applying to these selective institutions, certainly Harvard, certainly UNC, they're not going to get in. Does that mean that the institutions are damaged? No, they're choosing among overqualified applicants uh, and they could fill Harvard University many times over with... With qualified applicants, yeah. That's right, qualified, who have been rejected. Uh, so, you know, this is a, a different twist to the discourse. Yeah, I, I think, it, you know, I love, I love the way he, he likes to, to use examples and, and find sort of absurd examples. But, you know, you could certainly bring it both ways. Like, you know, I was talking about it with a friend who feels very strongly that race shouldn't be used. And so we, we took gender, for example, and I was saying, well, let's say statistically one in every million years, the top 50, uh, sorry, the top 500 uh, applicants happen to be all women. Uh, so no, no men are admitted into Harvard. Shouldn't Harvard be able to decide, well, hey, this might not be the best experience or this might this might be uh not what we want to try for our students so why don't we add some men i know there we're talking about gender instead of race but just as an extreme actually joe the fact pattern that you just posited isn't you know the same you know 500 and they're all women but for some time now women take take race out of it Women have been outperforming men academically yep. in presenting uh, in applications to these universities. Quietly, fairly quietly, there has been a thumb on the scale that could be described as affirmative action for men. And I'm talking about white men, you know, at uh, institutions for some time because the institutions do believe that diversity... Uh, along gender lines uh, is something that is desirable. Uh, you know, so far, women haven't sued institutions to say that they're engaging in gender discrimination. Let me point out as an aside, you know, I can get into all of these detailed constitutional issues, but let me point out that if there was such a lawsuit, the standard that is applied under the law as it exists now uh, the 14th Amendment, when it comes to gender, makes it easier for uh, institutions to defend against a gender-based suit than in race cases, uh, because in race, the standard is strict scrutiny. And when it comes to gender, it's a, a lower standard. 
um, in which, uh, you know, you have to show an exceedingly important justification, but not a compelling state interest in the way you do in race cases. That's a uh, an interesting twist. Whether if there was such a lawsuit, that disparity in the standard would uh, be upheld isn't clear to me. Roberts, I think, makes these points that are piercing in that, hey, okay, this particular admissions officer didn't really know how to treat South Asian versus East Asian, or at least their justifications weren't convincing to Justice Roberts. But his conclusion is, well, then all this has to go. That's right. And there are a whole lot of details when it comes to the way uh, diversity efforts uh, uh, have been applied and how our nation's history when it comes to uh, race um, and ethnicity play out. Uh, yeah, there's a difference. And we talk about Asians as one group. We lump Asians and Asian Americans together. It's very different to be a child from uh, a family uh, from Korea or to be Korean American or from a, fam- a Chinese American or family from China. Um, that's a very different experience than being Hmong. And uh, there are issues that the Hmong uh, who live uh, and emigrate to this country and live in this country deal with, which should, I think, lead uh, college admissions offices to be concerned about being conscious of their disadvantages when they apply and using maybe a kind of standard in admissions, um, if that's making sense. Uh, And, you know, yes, there were issues that uh, I wrote an introduction to a book that a friend and colleague wrote a few years back. It focused on the differences between African-Americans and African immigrants. Uh, And yes, when you look at Harvard and other selective institutions now, you find disproportionately the black people who are there are increasingly sons and daughters of Africans who come to the United States to go to college or recent immigrants to this country. The point I'm making is that uh, I'm happy they're there. Let me be clear. I'm concerned about who's not there increasingly and who has not been there. And that's the sons and daughters of the American uh, slavery to Jim Crow uh, continuum. And they are not there in significant numbers. So in any event, we have a very complicated set of issues. Based on Roberts's opinion, the ability to increase those populations that you're describing may be hamstrung by this, by this opinion. That's right. And I think it's pretty apparent that I continue to believe that we we have an imperative in this country with respect to addressing the inequities and inequalities that continue to echo down throughout the ages into the present time that impact those from the American slavery to Jim Crow continuum. And so, yeah, the language of conservative justices that said the problem is that affirmative action may be ageless in its reach, etc. Yeah, you know, it, it, it may go back a long way uh, because all of that history reaches into the present. That's why, you know, the average black wealth of a 
a black uh, of a family, a black family in Boston is uh, $8 as compared to white family wealth of $247,000. That's not a failure of personal responsibility. Those are structural and institutional issues and they are the consequence of all that we have been talking about. Professor, I know that we only have a short time with you and you're sitting in your car on a hot summer day. I'd love to talk in detail about the dissents, but maybe could you share an overview or some interesting thoughts from one or or more of the dissents? Well, let me just say quickly, Justice Jackson, you know, the newest member of the court, has hit the ground running. And I'm sure that there are other members of the court uh, whose heads probably must be spinning sometimes because she's not holding back. And her dissent was powerful. Uh, It means something now to have her on the court as an African-American voice not leaving that role only to Clarence Thomas. Clearly, they have very different views and uh, interests. And so uh, she wrote a powerful dissent. And, you know, she, the line about the military and that exception, you know, that was a critique of uh, the chief justice that I think had force. But there's so much else that she said. But she's also been a interpreter of the 14th Amendment, rather, in a way that I think has been very much a needed presence. Now, it, you know, she she has, uh, there are six votes in the supermajority, but it still matters because dissent is right for another age and time often. And it's important that she's there. So I think she's a powerful voice. I think that Justice Sotomayor wrote a powerful dissent, whether her lipstick uh, on a pig uh, description of that that sliver uh, with respect to the essays uh, that the Chief Justice seemed to leave open, uh, you know, we'll have to see. Uh, I mean, that was a powerful critique, but many people are hoping that um, that sliver actually adds up to more than uh, what some people think it might be. Uh, again, time will tell. But this supermajority, uh, maybe I'll stop here. I keep saying that this this Supreme Court, the most conservative Supreme Court in our lifetimes, was built for this moment as it was built for last terms override of Roe versus Wade. Um, they were built for this moment. This has been the agenda of the conservatives, the far right, the Federalist Society for decades and decades. You know, whatever happens, as one of the dissents say, Justice Jackson's dissent says, uh, whatever the court declared with respect to um, colorblindness, the lived reality of African-Americans is that we're not there. The facts are we're not there. But I... uh, I believe that uh, I believe that it's so important uh, for people to keep to keep fighting and struggling. These folks won't prevail in the long run, I think, because you know the country is changing. It has changed, you know, and so um, hope, even in the face of despair. Professor Ted Shaw teaches at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Thank you so much for the time today and for joining us 
even if it meant sitting in your car on a, a hot summer North Carolina day. Well, thank you. I see my wife and children walking by with our dogs right now, so uh, it's time to go. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.